Hi, Georgia here from Farmers for Climate Action. In this episode of Over the Fence, our CEO Fiona Davis talks to Emma Germano, the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation. This episode was recorded at the end of last year and since then Emma has been re-elected to another term as president of the VFF. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Fiona. Emma, thank you so much for joining us for the Over the Fence podcast today. Uh, we're keen to have a chat with you about your early life, your career and what, what drives you and what your hopes are for the future of Victorian agriculture. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about your first introduction to farming? It was just life, I guess. You know, you, when you're a kid, you kind of don't know that you're a farm kid. You, it's just how life is until you kind of get to primary school and when your friends come over. I mean, this is probably a terrible thing to admit to, but at seven and eight years of age, we would take our friends for a drive in the ute around the farm. And, and you know, I don't know how many young people learned how to drive vehicles on the farm. And, you know, there's photos of me, at, I don't know, when I can just barely walk feeding lambs and potty calves. And it, yeah, it was just part of life. And um, yeah, subsequently bought the farm off mum and dad. And, and pretty happy. It's interesting because I always talk about how farmers are always too emotionally connected to their land. It's certainly what I thought when I first, you know, professionally came into the industry, but now I totally get why. By accident, I ended up back on the farm. So I went off to uni and I'm one of two sisters and, and there was probably not a not a narrative in our family that we would take over the farm as, you know, a working farm and that that would be our job. Like it was, I was pretty clever at school. You'll go to uni, you'll become a profession and, and one day mum and dad will pass away and I'll inherit a farm. But there was certainly not an idea of succession per se. So what would teenage Emma have said about the trajectory that your career has taken? It's really interesting. You know, we talk about sharing farming stories and connecting with people and social media. And the very first post I put up about farming was when I had just gone back on the farm and I, I don't know, I was trying to organise a cauliflower harvest and whatever else. And I posted on Facebook, which is so like the irony of it is not lost on me now. I am not a farmer. I will never be a farmer. What am I doing here? And then looking at that journey, I've been back on the farm for 11 years. Yeah. I kind of can't believe how it turned out. But as a teenager, I thought I was going to go off and do medicine. And I was actually accepted under the rural program. So you can have a slightly reduced enter score. I don't even know if they call it. I think it's an ATAR now, whatever they call it now. Um, you could have a slightly reduced score as long as you pass the um, entrance exams and whatever. But the deal was you had to go back out to rural or regional Australia. And I was just like, well, that's not happening, like ever. So I actually didn't accept that placement and went off and studied some other stuff, like a really mixed bag of politics and English and biology and chemistry and whatever. And at the time, I guess it was because I thought I never wanted to specialise in one particular area. I really have like very broad interests. And what's really amazing to me now is that particularly with the role um, with the Farmers Federation and the farm and the business and whatever, I, like all of my loves have kind of come together in this really bizarre space that I would never have anticipated. So certainly didn't see the journey back on farm as being something that I was going to do and just ended up back there by accident on the back of some financial trouble that the family was in. Essentially, I had a restaurant which created a lot of pressure and then there was a couple of years of drought, a year where dad's wholesaler didn't pay him at all for an entire crop and before we knew it, things were pretty serious and so succession kind of happened by accident. I ended up buying our farm at auction. Um, the bank was going to be selling us up and so when I think about emotional connection to land 
and I, as long as I live, will never forget standing at auction on our own farm. And I remember thinking, this isn't necessarily the best business deal. It's not necessarily the best farm in the whole of Australia. It's not necessarily the career I would have chosen, but this farm is like a member of our family. And, you know, that emotional connection was how that decision was made. And given that nine out of 10 farmers are still family farmers in this country, I think if it wasn't for that emotional connection to land that farmers had, we wouldn't have such a resilient agriculture industry. So that's a very brief, quick, you know, story as to how I ended up here. Um, And then when I got involved in the farm, I just looked to see what was out there, went on a tour with Ausveg, and that kind of started the advocacy journey that um, has, I shouldn't say culminated, because maybe hopefully there's more things to come, but culminated at this point with being the BFF president. What was the first issue you wanted to engage in in agri-politics? What first um, got you fired up? Yeah, oh, workforce, absolutely all about workforce. And I, I think that I'm probably still most passionate about the agricultural workforce. It, it has been a problem since agriculture really started in Australia, that's the reality. So I'm a second generation Australian. All of my grandparents migrated to Australia and the job that they did was picking fruit and vegetables. And they were, you know, essentially allowed to migrate for that reason. The reality is we've needed a migrant workforce to assist with that since we started farming, particularly in the horticulture space. But it was quite funny because I was asked, you know, I was, had a tap on the shoulder, oh, will you come and be involved with the horticulture group at the VFF? Oh, yeah, what does that entail? Sure. And then I remember getting a phone call from one of the staff saying, oh, there's this thing called the backpack attacks. And because you've made the move, like people kind of knew the, the story of my farm, that we'd made the move from the, you know, the Asian contractor model because of, a, a, you know, the reality of it being not right on our farm and, and the cost actually of moving away from that and the risk of moving away from that, we started to employ backpackers. And so when the backpack attacks happened, the BFF called and said, oh, would you mind just doing one radio interview? We promise it'll just be one. And now that I think about, you know, essentially being on the radio a number of times each week and how, you know, that backpack attacks turned into this political fit football. So all of a sudden I kind of became the face of that. It was easy because it was just a true story that I was telling about what was going on on my farm and why it was important. So certainly the workforce stuff was the first issue and probably one that will be ongoing for a long time yet. So you talked a bit about the skills you learn as a kid, you know, driving a ute around the farm at a pretty young age. Are there certain skills that you can think of now that you've taken from that childhood on the farm through your career? The first thing that came to my mind when you asked me that question is just the notion of resilience that you'll just work it out. Like whatever the problem is, you will work it out. And I think that most farmers have that attitude. Um, I was on social media yesterday and there was images of um, flood-affected farmers in New South Wales and getting their sheep into the back of boats and a makeshift um, loading ramp that they'd created. And I just... Meanwhile, I want to have a cry about it now, but I like it made me really emotional. I just thought, wow, like farmers just get it done in the face of such unbelievable adversity that I think, you know, most people in the cities just just don't know about, right? Like just freak out. Like, I mean, we went mental and we bought all the toilet paper, if we can all recall, you know, and I, don't, I just don't think farmers were the ones buying all of the toilet paper. They're just such practical people who say, well, you know, probably you need the food before you need the toilet paper and, and farmers just, whether it's drought or bushfire or market closures overnight or biosecurity, whatever it is, farmers just work it out. So I think that sense of resilience um, and gratitude is probably the number one learning lesson as being a kid who's grown up on a farm, as well as kind of being 
which I didn't kind of get at the time, uh, being really kind of connected to the environment and to nature. And I really have an appreciation for that now because when I'm starting to kind of lose my own mind, I know as soon as I go back to the farm, there is just this resetting that happens without it being conscious. Um, so, yeah, uh, they're the things that I think I've probably taken into my adult um, career the most. And you've touched on there some of the impacts of extreme weather events. Can you talk about when you when you first noticed that climate change was having an impact in your region? I'm really mindful about the way that I speak about climate change because I think that the conversation has become fraught with talking about ideology rather than just talking about what's in front of us, what's tangible, what practical things that we can do and, you know, even just the precautionary principle around, you know, is it anthropogenic climate change? I think that we can't deny that what we are doing is we are pulling massive amounts of carbon from the ground, burning it, putting it in the atmosphere. We are degrading biodiversity and, you know, river systems and whatever. There's there's just no question about that for me. Um, But you know, is that the difference between global warming or global cooling? Like I can look at science and say there's been warming periods and cooling periods. So for me, it's about how do we do everything that we do better and with the notion of it being renewable over time so that we don't get caught up in talking about whether it's real or whether it's fake. Like so much of the energy of that conversation has gone into is it real or is it not real? And that energy could have been going into how do we do things better and how do we Um, produce the tools necessary for us just to do things better because if it is true we're in serious trouble here Um, and at the very least if we're in a warming period we don't want it to be because of what humans are doing without taking um, notice of the environment that we live in so um, when did I notice I mean I've always known that you know the, our, our whole lives as a family was kind of around the weather. There was one time as about a nine-year-old kid um, when Rob Jell was telling the, the, the weather um, that my dad asked me if I could turn up the TV and very jokingly I ran in slow motion whilst singing the Chariots of Fire um, theme song and missed turning it up before the end of the weather. And my dad was, I reckon that's probably one of the most angriest he's ever been at me because our lives just revolved around What's the weather? What's the weather doing? Is it a drought? Is it La Nina? All of those things. So I think that we've always, as farmers, known that we're impacted by the weather. But there is also no question that right now, at least what the data says, is that these things are ha- happening more frequently. They are more ferocious. Um, you know, things that are supposed to be once in 100 years happen three years in a row now. Um, and we need to be thinking about climate change from the perspective of how do we manage in this changing climate and with all of these extremes. So always been aware of how important the weather is um and yeah and thinking about how do we how do we manage that and how do we make sure that we're not contributing to it what prompted you to kind of throw your hat in the ring for the vff president role i'm a bit of a person who just says yes to opportunities so it certainly wasn't i i really very genuinely never aspired to it so it's not like i was thinking oh that's what i want to do or anything like that it was just being in the environment and seeing an opportunity or being asked to do something and just constantly saying yes that sounds really passive and that's you know that's also a little disingenuous from the perspective of, I mean, to, to get the vice president's role. I ran for that three times. So there is clearly some intention about, you know, what I've been doing. Um, but, I, yeah, I didn't go looking for it. Um, I'm, I'm really very motivated by how do we, you know, the agriculture system I think is kind of the world's most noble profession. And, in fact, agriculture has or our ability as human beings to do agriculture is really where our civilization comes from so on this really deep level i think that the way that we do agriculture 
totally impacts every human being, the way civilizations are, you know, even to the point where once you've enabled the ability to feed a population, which is where agriculture started, right? Well, that's when we had time to think about even things like God and religion. And I just think that it's really amazing. There's nothing that we do that's kind of more important if we go back just to the basic needs. So I think for me, I'm, I'm really motivated by the fact that we have an impact on the planet. I'm also really motivated by the fact that we have people around the world who don't have enough food and the food system itself leads to, you know, those who are rich and those who are poor. And that leads literally to people dying because they don't have enough food. How the food system works, that all really, really motivated me to get involved. So on that really global kind of level, but then I'm also just really motivated by people. And I don't think it's okay that people that are producing food and being asked to do now climate services, you know, so much pressure is put on farmers. I don't think it's right that those farmers don't have a collective, that they wouldn't have a collective voice. And um, yeah, it's just a way of kind of caring about something and and being able to use a skill set that I have on behalf of that group of people, which is actually on behalf of everybody realistically. What are you most proud of that you've achieved in the role? Oh, geez, that's a tough question um, because I'm probably, you know, when you're in a kind of public-facing leadership role, you you do get told most of the time what you're doing wrong, not what you're doing right. Um, What am I proud of? Uh, the other day, we, you know, in the face of a um, media article that suggested that, you know, members are leaving in droves from the Victorian Farmers Federation, I actually had management map out um, since 2007, uh, the membership movement, and it's been um, from 2021 and 2022 when I've been president that we've finally arrested the the slow decline of members out of the BFF. So I think that there's something about the outward face and yeah, the communication piece and that advocacy piece that I'm obviously doing okay at. Um, So I guess, you know, having arrested that decline is probably the thing that I feel proud of. Um, But proud, I mean, you you know, the thing about being a leader is that when things go right, the whole team is responsible for that. And when things go wrong, you know, it's my fault. So, you know, not proud enough yet, I I guess, um, yeah, just being here is probably something that I feel really honoured to have the opportunity to do. What's most challenging about the role? Oh, that personal cost of leadership. And you can have, oh my goodness, I'm so emotional today. I've been crying about everything. I'm going to cry about this as well. Um, that, yeah, the personal cost of it, and it, it rattles around in my head all the time. Like it never stops. Um, also the personal cost of the growth in my own business, my own farm business, like that's kind of been put on ice realistically. So there's been no growth in my own business since I've been in this role. Um, it's fine, like it's ticking along, but I, I do sometimes think to myself, you know, it's really interesting. It's a really tough role. You have your good days, you have your bad days. Sometimes I question my why, like why do I personally put myself out here to be personally, you know, attacked with some of the decisions or some of the things that happen that are completely outside of my control. And then you have to turn around when an election comes up and say, hey, you know this job that's really difficult? Um, I was wondering if I could please have it again and you kind of don't want to ask for it. So that's probably the tough stuff, I think. People will attack me personally rather than playing the ball. But I think that that's something that we don't do very well in Australia and our public conversation about leadership and politicians has deteriorated to a point where it actually becomes this complete the, the sideshow about who the individuals are. It's to the detriment of actually writing good policy and creating a, a culture where leaders are supported so that they can make good decisions so that people will say, I'm going to make that tough decision because it's the right one. Not, I'm not going to make it because I might not get voted in. And that's the stuff that I really grapple with most of the time. And you're coming up to another election mm-hmm. um, within VFF. Can you tell me about what you're hoping to achieve as president if you're in for another term? And 
what your vision is for Victorian agriculture. It's really interesting because the, the CEO said to me, how's your campaign slogan going? And, and this is literally my campaign slogan at the moment. Like I've, I've smashed a lot of eggs. They say you've got to smash some eggs to make an omelette. Well, not smash them. You're supposed to crack them to make an omelette. And I feel like we've asked, I've gone around this business and asked all of these really difficult questions and kind of highlighted a bunch of inconvenient truths and you know, that, like I said, comes at a cost. Um, now I want to really cement those changes and consolidate on them and make sure that there is, you know, we talk about sustainability, that the organisation is sustainable moving forward. What's really interesting is having gone through about 20 years worth of board papers at this organisation, um, we have been doing a lot of going around in circles and I think it is because people it is difficult to change a status quo and no one wants to put their individual name to it but I ran for pres- the presidency in the first instance because I saw an organisation that has a beautiful legacy it has great potential but it needs to be modernised and I want to just finish the job that I've started. And the future for Victorian agriculture more broadly with um, outside of VFF? Yeah I think that you know never waste a good crisis I think that between COVID and, um, you know, the geopolitical, the global geopolitical situation, people are becoming more mindful about where their food comes from. And where I think there is, there's almost like a trend back to being more respectful of farmers and how much they have the capacity to help out, not just providing food, therefore food security, therefore national security, but also now I think that there will be a real rise in um, you know, the notion of, in inverted commas, carbon farming and biodiversity and whatever, because we we really have um, the capacity to do some amazing things as farmers. And I do think we're going to get to the point where we are acknowledged for that, rather than this demand that we should do it on behalf of everybody and it shouldn't matter what how much we get paid, that consumers are kind of responsible for their um, impact on the environment and understanding that they have to take some responsibility because it's all well and good to say you're not taking any responsibility when you can walk into a supermarket and there is everything available in plentiful supply, it is cheap and it's been like that for such a long time. I think the fact that we've now seen shortages of things and prices going up, uh, that conversation I think despite it being a challenging one, I think is really um there's a lot of opportunity that lies there for farmers um, and it's I, I think it's becoming there's more and more opportunity all of the time. And do you see opportunities for Victorian farmers around the renewable energy boom? You know I think the biggest issue is that we keep saying things like oh there's their environment and, there, and there's farms and those two things are separate from each other. We don't take a holistic view to the environment and how we feed ourselves within the environment. I have a significant issue that once again you know talking about who, who pays the cost of um, wanting to reduce carbon emissions or whatever um, the pursuit may be, that what we do is we go and, you know, we're crisscrossing through agricultural land, prime agricultural land to put in transmission lines for renewable energy um, that we might get to a point in another 10 years or 20 years' time and say, oh, this wasn't that renewable after all or it's not really quite working out and that there's not a holistic view and a a strategic plan for it. Um, I think that it's also a shame that we concentrate on how large projects, like these big, large projects, I think that we should be thinking about the the micro projects on every individual farm that will really make it, you know, collectively a huge difference. Yeah, but we've got to get this policy setting right because we're talking about the next 50 to 100 years and the conversation has moved almost too quickly. So we've jumped the gun in some instances and 
and yet we, you know, we have to do things better. So for me, it's like how do we be more strategic about it so that, yes, farmers do have the opportunity um, and what we don't have is uh, farmers with transmission lines everywhere um, without A, being rewarded and B, acknowledging the cost of food and the, the price of ripping through that farmland. Have you seen anywhere it's working well in Victoria? It's interesting. I, I might reframe that question and talk about when we where we see opposition to new projects coming on versus when we don't. Um, and it's really fascinating to me that you can have, you know, two separate underground lines going through, you know, on two separate trajectories um, or paths. And on one, we have had, you know, all of the farmers on the line uh, opposing and on the other we have not had one farmer who have come to us and said there's a problem here and it's very much about how the proponents do community engagement and when they do it genuinely and when they they really have the values of respecting farmland and why it's important they have a lot less problems getting their projects to go through. So I think that's how I'll, I'll answer as opposed to this project is good and this project is bad. We're hearing a lot about carbon farming. I was this week at a biodiversity market roundtable with the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Uh, we're really interested in the opportunities that lie there, you know, if well managed. Um, interested in your thoughts of what, what where you see the opportunity lies. I think um, these things are going to grow organically over time, right, because the framework of ensuring that what we're doing is making a positive impact as opposed to saying wonderful things and it becoming a marketing line is really important. You know, are three koalas worth 400 accus? Who knows? You know, how do we how do we actually measure this stuff? I think that it's awesome because if you don't have the, a commercial motivator to do some of these things, they won't happen because you shouldn't be asked to make less money on your farm in order to farm carbon because you're being told to do so. I'm a little bit concerned about, because it's kind of like this fledgling industry and, and we, you know, we're not really clear about um, how to measure things. In a lot of cases, we're selling future promises and I'm concerned about whether or not those future promises are actually achievable. It's opened up the opportunity for some kind of dodgy operators to enter into the space. And, and I see, you know, there's some farmers that are now, you know, already selling carbon credits um, not knowing whether or not they're going to need those carbon credits on their own farm. Yeah, there, there's always, there's drawbacks and benefits to everything. It absolutely has to happen. I love the idea of biodiversity services as being something that are acknowledged and paid for, but we have to we have to tread very carefully because, you know, we don't need a dot-com boom around a carbon market, which is actually what's already starting to happen. You know, this is going to be just another financial instrument if those things that we're doing are not actually having a positive impact on the environment. So there's lots of clever accounting methods, but how many of them are going to have that really positive impact? Um, and that's what we've got to work out. I'm interested in your role bringing together many varied farmer voices um, together to discuss government policy and to have positions. What works and what doesn't? Um, Nothing works. <laughs> Nothing actually works. It, this was, uh, you know, to get our climate change policy through the VFF took, you know, years. Actually, you asked me before what I was proud of. That's one of the things I actually am proud of because what I what I tried to do was sidestep the ideology. Like, what's the actual problem we're trying to solve here? And that I think if we ask ourselves that question all of the time and understand that all of the voices are actually important in the conversation, um, and don't take things so personally. Uh, I think that's when it when it works because if you marginalise a group of people and you say, "Oh no, you're wrong," and you're you know you're the three percent, 
that minority become louder and louder and louder and massive distractors. And I think that we can see that in regards to how um, energy um, and climate policy is be has been attempted to be set in this country. It just became this political nightmare, actually, um, rather than if we're talking about something that's scientific, if we're talking about something that can be measured, why is there so much heat in it? So I think that sidestepping of the ideological debate and just saying, okay, what things are we going to do and how do we bring the entire community along on the journey um, is is the way to go about it. Having said that, sometimes you've just got to make a move. Um, and I know at the VFF, you know, we've, and indeed across a lot of organisations and particularly in agricultural advocacy, we wait for consensus. And the problem with waiting for consensus is to, to do nothing is to make a choice also. And sometimes you're just going to have to deal with the fact that not everybody is going to agree. So, you know, our climate change policy, we didn't have 100% support for it around the table. There was a lot of support, overwhelming support, but we had to be ready to move and to to make that palatable. I was going to say placate, that's not really fair. To make that more palatable to the people that were really uncomfortable about it, we sidestepped the ideology and, and acknowledge this is what's happening in the, um, when I say environment, I don't mean the natural environment, but the political environment, the community. We have to acknowledge that. So even if you don't want to believe in it, you have to acknowledge that everybody else does. And if you don't, then we're going to end up in trouble and the world will move anyway. So, um, yeah, sidestep ideology, be practical. And I think that most people, are, um, and particularly farmers, are very practical people who, who will understand. What a great note to finish up on. But before I do, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I, no, I think that's probably covered it. It's such an interesting conversation because I think that there is just this is where it's going to be at. So I had a presentation given to me about particular carbon methodology that kind of made really, made a lot of sense to me, like made a lot of practical sense. And when I considered, or well, when I considered, what was pointed out to me that with 345 million hectares or something in Australia, carbon at a particular number of units per hectare and whatever else, the opportunity in this market will be bigger than the mining industry. And I don't think that we are having a conversation about carbon markets, particularly um, from the perspective of that's how much um, opportunity we actually have here and this is how massive it's going to be. You know, these are things, these are going to be financial instruments floating on global markets. There's a lot in it. So that I think is worth noting. And the other thing is that often what we do is in Australia, we'll say, okay, so we're going to shut down all of the, um, and, and I want to be really clear. Personally, my opinion is that we shouldn't be going hell for leather just shutting down coal-fired power plants without an actual decent plan that we understand that that is not going to amount to pensioners, vulnerable people, single mums, the people in lower socio dem um, demographics are going to not be able to heat their homes or they're not going to be able to have the food that they need and the nutrition that they, they need and all of those things for the sake of ideology. I think that that that's dangerous. But when we're thinking about like if we shut down all of our power plants, you know, people will say, the detractors will say, well, you know, it's, it's only you know, this tiny percentage of global emissions and China's opening up this many at the same time and whatever. So we, we, we look at it and we go, it's kind of like a drop in the ocean. But when you flip that and you start talking about the potential we have to sequester carbon in this country, we could be a global leader. And that's the stuff that I think we should be focusing on rather than bitching and squabbling about the phase out plan because I, I agree actually with probably some of the climate deniers or um, where the opposition is that 
you know, is that going to stop floods and droughts and bushfires tomorrow because we turn off all of the power plants? No, of course not. Like that doesn't make sense. So instead of talking about it from that perspective, we should be talking about the huge opportunity that Australia has being, you know, one of the largest, you know, continental masses, um, having a really um, small population and all of those things and flip it so that everybody can be part of that opportunity on behalf of the rest of the globe. And that's probably, I think if we got to that point, then this whole conversation would change in this in this country. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Emma. I've really enjoyed our chat. I look forward to seeing what happens next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, if I, I was like, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? It's like, what do I do if I'm not the VFF president? You just about, you know, I live, breathe and, you know, every minute of my life. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens and, and how the members feel. People tell me that the members always get it right, so we'll see what the members think. Thank you for listening to my interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to Over the Fence and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved with Farmers for Climate Action, you can visit the website at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Otherwise, connect with us on social media. 